It's fair to say there are several unusual features in this passage. But there are two that put it in contrast to the rest of the treatment of the life of Elijah. In the first place, here we don't see Elijah coming in person and bringing the word of God in person to a king. He does that, of course, to Ahab and to Azariah, or Ahaziah. But here we find him writing a letter. Not a prophet in word, but a prophet in written word. But also we find him dealing with an issue in the southern kingdom. Up to this point, he has been dealing with sin in the northern kingdom. Again, for the children, for the young people, don't forget that after the reign of Solomon, uh, the kingdom divides into two parts. There is a northern kingdom of the ten tribes, the southern kingdom, really Judah, assimilating Benjamin, and there are these two separate kingdoms. To this point, Elijah's ministry has largely been in the northern kingdom, sited in Samaria where Ahab was reigning. But now we find him writing to a king of the southern kingdom. Again, chapter 21, verse 1, Jehoram, his son, reigned in his stead, that is, in the stead of Jehoshaphat, who was reigning in the city of David, that is, Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. We see Elijah as a firebrand preacher and prophet of God, less so as a writer. But here in verse number 12, it says, And there came a writing to him, from Elijah the prophet. And that's where things get very interesting. How so, where so? How does this letter come to Jehoram from Elijah the prophet? Now, the issue has to do with dates. There are at least five possible views regarding this letter I say at least because every time I read somebody else they had another idea and so my list got longer and longer and longer but I came up with five that at least had some degree not much but some degree of substance to them the first idea is that Elijah was still on earth during the reign of Jehoram that involves a significant manipulation of the the, the Bible text not entirely impossible, but incredibly unlikely in light of the dates, as we'll soon see. So therefore, it comes to Jehoram after Elijah's translation. After he's left this earth, Jehoram's reign is after Elijah has left this earth. Therefore, you've kind of four other possibilities. Then if we discount that one, there are four other possibilities. It is another Elijah. Somebody said it. There's no evidence for it. There's no record of it. It's just somebody trying to, if you like, square a circle in some way. And they say, well, there must be another Elijah. The liberals, they, they, they might like that one, but they prefer all more. Actually, the, 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 the translation or the text is wrong. The writer didn't mean Elijah. They meant Elisha. And there's, there's a mistake. There's some mistake here, but really they meant Elisha. The other idea, the fourth one, is that Elisha wrote this while in heaven. Or an amendment of that is the idea that he came down from heaven to earth to write this letter. And in that sense, he then wrote the letter in some way. 
Again, after all, he came down upon the Mount Transfiguration. And again, there are some really quite orthodox theologians who hold this particular view. So before you get scouted quickly, again, there are some who hold it. But again, it seems unlikely. The likely solution to this is that Elijah wrote this letter prior to his translation by a spirit of prophecy. That is then, again, here I'm going to speculate, perhaps given to Elisha, who then passed it on. Hard to prove that bit, but I think I'm very happy to say that Elijah wrote this in the spirit of prophecy that is now then presented to Jehoram. If I put it this way, it's the one view that causes fewer problems than all others. Every other view has some very, very significant problems. This does not have such. And such, of course, is entirely consistent with the use of God's word in prophecy. Many of the prophets are given a word from God regarding the future that they themselves may not actually see worked out. So the idea of God giving a prophet word that is written down and then passed on to a future generation is entirely normal in the purpose and plans of the Lord. And so let's consider this letter and consider it as coming prior to translation. And as such, it is therefore yet another instance of Elijah bringing the message of judgment. We're up to three in a row of Elijah coming and bringing judgment from God to a wayward king. We've thought on this subject at some length. We see that God is not blind to sin, but will indeed deal with sin. We see all this. But today, again, I want to look at this passage and come to it from a slightly different angle, perhaps. But first of all, Elijah's letter is a word of prophecy. And here, let me go back and really highlight the issue of the dates here. Uh, I've already kind of touched on this already. Let's look at this in, in, in some detail. Elijah is here, I believe, writing about events that were future to him. We're now reading it in history. But as he wrote these words, they were events that were future to him at the time of writing. As you go back to 2 Kings chapter 2. Now in 2 Kings chapter 2 we have, and we'll see it next Lord's Day, we have the account of Elijah's translation. He's taken into heaven by a whirlwind, verse number 1. Now in 2 Kings chapter 2, that translation occurs between the reigns of Ahaziah and Jehoram, king of Israel. Now kids, I am sorry here. There are two Jehorams at the same time. And that's where you get really confused. Okay, there's the northern king, Jehoram, who again reigns, again after Isaiah, who dies at the end of chapter 1. And then you have the southern Jehoram, who reigns again after Jehoshaphat, his father in the south. Not saying it's not confusing, it is confusing. But if you think about it, it's not that difficult. The account here of translation in chapter 2 sits again between these two reigns of Isaiah and Jehoram. Israel's Jehoram, again the northern Jehoram, began to reign in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom. We get that over in chapter 3 verse 1 of 2 Kings. Now Jehoram the son of Ahab 
Okay, who's the son of Ahab? He's northern, Ahab, northern king. Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. It's a northern Jehoram. Now, again, I'm going to confuse this more. The 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, is also described as the second year of Jehoram, king of Judah. That's over in chapter 1, verse 17 of 2 Kings. And he, that is Isaiah, died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah spoken, and Jehoram reigned in his stead in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now this, is, this has got people scratching their heads. Don't, if you're scratching your head, don't worry about it. What's happening here is, and this was common in that day, a father and a son may reign together. And towards the end of father's reign, there's a kind of co-regency for a season as the, the baton is passed from father to son. And so both kings reign for a season. But what it highlights again is that Elijah was aware of Jehoram's reign in the south before his translation. He's at least some awareness of the character and the sin of Jehoram. But the letter is written prior to the murder of the brothers. There's some overlap. Why do I say that? Because Elijah is not there after the reign of Jehoshaphat. So they've got Jehoshaphat, Jehoram. But when Jehoram is reigning on his own, Elijah's not there. Because look over at chapter 3, verse 11. Again, this is to do with the compromise between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, southern kingdom, says, Is there not a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. So Jehoshaphat's still alive. So it's not Jehoram's reign in isolation yet, but already Elijah's gone. Elisha is now the prophet of God. So what does all this matter? It just means a letter came after Elijah's translation. That when you look at all those dates and try to figure it all out, it is clear that Elijah writing in the reign of Jehoram, when he's not reigning his father, he's on his own. The letter in 2 Chronicles chapter 21 comes after Elijah has left this world. And that reveals so much regarding the nature and the character of our God. It's not without benefit in taking the time to observe this. The letter speaks of sin revealed unto Elijah by the Lord. And it speaks in detail of the judgment that God meets out. You see, look back at the second Chronicles chapter 21. And you'll see again immediately that this word comes with the authority of God. Only God. Only God could have caused Elijah to write these words. That's what prophecy is about. It's that God is able to give his prophets a foresight of the unseen future to know what's going to happen regarding the sins of the future and also to warn of judgment, judgment that will be fulfilled in precise detail. So you've got that in verse number 12. And there came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet saying, Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father. 
Elijah was made aware that Jehoram was going to walk in a way consistent with Ahab and not consistent with Jehoshaphat. And God brings the word of judgment. It's also worth noting this word comes with prediction of future events. Events that come to pass. Again, note the, 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 almost the grotesque nature of the detail. Verse 15. Thou shalt have great sickness by the disease of thy bowels until thy bowels fall out by reason of sickness day by day. There is some form of, of an inflammatory bile disease or some sort of prolapse that comes about and it's fulfilled in precise detail. Verse number 18, after all this, please note the time stamp here. That Elijah's letter is not coming while Jehoram is suffering, but before he begins to suffer. And then it takes two full years before the boils actually fall out and he dies. Verse number 19. Again, it, it's horrible. The, the, the very thoughts are, are, are grotesque. But again, it's indicating that God does not treat sin lightly. And he comes in wrath against an individual due to their personal wickedness. But God, as he brings this word of authority from Elijah and brings this word of the future towards Jehoram, it is a word of grace in the warning of a future display of wrath. See, God's judgment upon this wicked world has a future dimension. Don't we believe that God gave his prophets insight about sin and events that are yet to come to pass? See, the liberals, they, they really hate 2 Chronicles 21. They detest it. They have a God who can foresee the future and understand the future, and bring judgment upon the future. And yet that's the very essence of, of, your, like, of evangelical gospel preaching. We say to people, flee. What from? Your miserable life? Well, perhaps. But also from the wrath to come. And we believe that God has said there's a coming wrath. And Elijah really here is functioning really in the spirit of Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. You turn there, please, and you'll see in 2 Peter chapter 3 the parallels that are very clear between God's word to Jehoram through Elijah and God's word to you today through Peter. A couple of thousand years almost since Peter's written. And, and you now have a word that's saying to you, there is our coming day of wrath. But you say to yourself, where is the promise of his coming? What's taking so long? The, 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 the God of heaven, through his Son, has warned that he will return and bring judgment upon the ungodly. And Peter says, yes, that's true. And yet the scoffer says, where is the promise of his coming? It's a dreadful thing to be described as a scoffer. Read that word, in the last days scoffers will come, walking after their own lusts. What does it mean to scoff? To mock the word of God, the character of God, to laugh in God's face, and to say, God, you must be a liar because you have not yet kept your word. You see, the Old Testament warnings of this coming judgment to Jehoram or others is to show us that God does indeed keep his word. 
and that God is not bound by time as we are bound by time. But again, in verse number 8, we read the words, Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Because the warning of judgment is long coming, we presume it will not come at all. But that is foolish because God is not governed by time the way we are governed by time. So God's word is still coming to pass. But note that in the delay of judgment, God is not slack concerning his promise, verse number 9. As some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Kremacher, as he comments on the warning of Elijah to Jehoram, says this, Surely this warning was sent by merciful God in order to alarm and waken him to true repentance and conversion. I think that's true. It's in the spirit of Jonah to Nineveh, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what happens? They hear the word, they turn from their sins, they repent, they confess their need of God, and God relents. These words of judgment that are given to the individual are God warning that if they continue in their ways, then this will occur. The tragedy of Jehoram is we see no record of his repentance and no record of his turning from his evil ways. And so the threat and judgment comes. But dear sinner today, you have time. It's not too late. The word of God comes and warns you a coming day when God will come and burn the elements up with fervent heat. Verse number 10. But he's coming. But right now it's a day of long suffering, a day of mercy. That if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you will indeed be delivered from the wrath to come. Future judgment may not seem to be so real. You think it would be easier if God began judging us right now. And then we could see God's judgment. And we'd understand God's judgment and then begin to repent. But these, these, these future warnings, how, how do we believe a future warning? If God would reveal himself now, we would then see it more clearly. God does both. Romans 1, the wrath of God is now being revealed. As men are left to continue in their sin and pursue their sinful ways, that's a display of God's wrath. God does with his wrath now. But also there's a greater day of wrath yet to come. Dear sinner, repent. Elijah's prophecy comes true in precise detail, and so will the Lord's prophecy. Be the wise virgin, ready for the bridegroom's return. Make sure you've put your trust in Christ Jesus, and you're waiting expectantly for his blessed return. It is a word of prophecy. In the context of a life of tragedy, Again, I want to front end, if you like, the, the, the nature of this word of judgment. But we've got to take some time to examine something of the life of Jehoram. Again, there are lessons for us to learn. There's always lessons to learn in life's storybooks. We see the good and we see the ill in our own lives as well as in the lives of the Bible characters. And here we are touched by the sadness of this case. Here's a man who in God's providence had much in the way of privilege and yet followed a life of sin. Think of his life in three phases. First of all, his days as a prince. Again, we've got the treatment of that verse number thirty or verse number five of chapter twenty-one. Jehoram was thirty and two years old when he began to reign. 
He is a grandson, and then a son to a king. With like the last number of years as some sort of viceroy, where he's serving in, you know, in, in, a, in a cooperative sense with his father for some time in the reign. He had the example of Jehoshaphat. You look across to Second Chronicles chapter 20 and the verse number 32. Now let's read verse 31. And Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 30 and 5 years old and he began to reign. He reigned 20 and 5 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah. And then verse 20, 32. And he walked in the way of Asa his father and departed not from it, doing that which is right in the sight of the Lord. His father was a man who feared the Lord. Jehoshaphat is often mentioned with commendation in the word of God. And Jehoram had a good example in that regard. And yet, Jehoshaphat's reign also includes a note of caution. You have it there in verse 33, Howbeit the high places were not taken away. He doesn't go about and ensure wholehearted religious reform. Still some degree of compromise in the reign of Jehoshaphat. And that is seen no more clearly than you go back to 1 Kings chapter 22. Look back at 1 Kings 22. Because again, in the treatment, any treatment of Jehoshaphat, you've got to see how did Jehoshaphat in the south interact with Ahab in the north. They overlap for a good number of years. And so chapter 22 of 1 Kings, verse 43, it says this. And he walked in all the ways of Asa, his father, this is Jehoshaphat, he turned not aside from doing it, doing that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. And nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered him burnt incense yet in high places. And here's the caveat. And Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. I wonder, we're not told explicitly, I wonder if part of that peace, the marrying of Ahab's daughter to Jehoram. There were other times of compromise engaged, and there was, again, there are passages told with the battles where Ahab and Jehoshaphat compromised in some alliance that, that really does not, never works out well for Jehoshaphat. So we see him in that which is good, doing that which is right, upholding true worship, yet not removing false worship, compromising for the sake of civil and political advantage. And so I, I say to the children and the young people in our congregation again this morning, treasure your privilege, but understand your parents are not perfect. I think most of us parents, we stand in the pattern of a Jehoshaphat. We have desired to do what is right in the sight of God, but we have not done so perfectly. And sometimes children are quick to see the flaws in parenting and the compromise and use that as an excuse for their ungodliness without treasuring the privilege of being raised in a godly home, in a godly church with the preaching of the word of God. And so I challenge our young people, don't despise the example of your parents but do better than we did. Do, do better than we did. Don't use our mistakes to justify you going in a direction away from the Word of God. But learn from our mistakes and seek by God's grace to do better than we did. In your home life, in your church life, 
and in your personal life. Do not see Jehoram's case here as really well. Joshua must be a terrible father, a terrible parent. Yeah, he made mistakes, but God commends him. But he highlights for us again the principle that the best of men are men at best. And Jehoram did his own thing for his own cause and rebelled against his father's good example. He had that privilege. We also note in his life as a prince, his marriage. Uh, I'm not trying to contrast your privilege and marriage. That's not, that's not my point right now. But I'm just simply saying, in his case, his privilege, greatly privileged financially and spiritually. He had all the things he needed in verse number 3. But the marriage comes as a profound contrast with his opportunities. In verse number 6, there was a direct link in between his marriage and his compromised behavior. Verse 6, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, like as did the house of Ahab, for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife, and he wrought that which is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to insert something here, but I'm simply pointing out the influence of his marriage. Uh, Young people, again, I make it clear. Your marriage is the most influential relationship you'll have in your life. It will have the greatest impact in your life going forward. Your parents, eventually you will live on this earth without them. But in the purpose of God, you will live most of your life with your spouse. Ordinarily, it's not always the case, I understand that, but ordinarily. There is no more influential relationship than the relationship you have with your spouse. We're not told explicitly why Jehoram married Ahab's daughter. It's not explicit. Was it arranged by the fathers? Well, even in that case, you've got a compliant son in such a situation. Whatever the case is, it results in ungodly decisions. Because of the marriage, he wrought that which is evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see, 1 Corinthians 7 acknowledges that a married man or woman will have a mind how to please their spouse. And here Jehoram marries one that he has the wrong kind of spiritual fellowship with. And he compromises with the north. It's always the case. The godly will compromise in fellowship with the ungodly. The ungodly are not elevated. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And when there is such an unholy alliance in marriage, it is the godly spouse who will compromise ordinarily in some way or other. We're simply again reminded of the importance of an equal yoke when it comes to marriage. Entering into marriage with a desire to walk together with the Lord. Young people, please, heed this warning. Heed it well in your life. And you have unusual difficulties in your present generation. Because you're living in a day when there are many in the professed church of Christ who are mingling idolatry of this world with some form of religion. And you find yourself unusually challenged. Things are not black and white when it comes to an equal yoke. It's not enough, young people, to say, well, they say they're a Christian. They may say they're a Christian, but if they love the world, beware marrying such.
because you will find yourself succumbing to their worldly desires in your marriage. You want to marry someone who not only knows the Lord, but wants to give their lives wholeheartedly in obedience to the Lord. It's marriage. The result of the marriage, of course, is not only the terms, the decisions that are made, but also the seed that follows. And again, you've got language regarding the product of this marriage in 2 Chronicles 22, verse 1 to 4. What happens in the marriage is that those who follow after, they also walk in the ways of Ahab. The mother's mentioned here, verse number 3, he also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. You see that? That the mother's influence is not only upon the husband, but also upon the children, and you get this ungodly seed. You see, the climate of the home is so important. Do our children understand how seriously we take our walk with God? Or do they see our compromises? Do they, do they see our inconsistencies? And then question within their own minds, is the Lord really most important in their lives? You see the challenges here? His days as prince. But secondly, his days as king. Yeah, maybe very quickly, there are three words because some of us reign. First of all, rebellion, verse 13. Regarding the reign of Jehoram, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. The northern kingdom has made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go whoring like to the whoredoms of the house of Ahab. The language again is, 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 is stark. He led them in spiritual adultery, in spiritual fornication. They committed adultery against the Lord God of Israel. That They were guilty of such. Oh, the danger of influence. Krumacher says this, How awful when ministers of Christ's religion teach under the name of morals and philosophy another gospel which is not another, corrupting and denying the plain and express word of God. How awful that is. How awful he continues when poets, journalists, and other popular writers endeavor by every means to seduce the people from the way of truth into theistical or atheistic sophistry. <laughs> okay, it's his language, not mine. Young people, you understand this concept. Influencers. We live in a day when that has become a noun. You are an influence. What's your job? I'm an Instagram influencer. Oh, what does that mean? What do you do when you're an Instagram influencing? Oh, I influence people. They're not even hiding it anymore. There's no salt in this anymore. It's not discreet or behind the door. They're telling you in your face, I am influencing you now. now it's one thing if it comes to the, the nature of your blue jeans. That's one thing. But the influence in social media is like that of Jehoram. Taking people away to whoredoms away from the true and living God. And they're doing it from the right wing and from the left. Both spectrums or both sides of the political spectrum are influencing people away from faith in the one true and living God. And young people, ask yourself the question. How much time are you spent every day? I shouldn't say young people, old people as well. Older people. Older people, sorry. 
All of us, how much time are we spending in our day being influenced by people who have no time for God? Seriously. How much time are you flicking through your phone being influenced continually by that which hates the Lord? That's what Jehoram does. Rebellion. Revolt also marks his reign. As per Isaiah in the north, when Moab comes, so here in verse number 8, and also for Libna, verse number 10, there is revolt under his hand. Again, these revolutions of those who were under subjection in David's reign are indications that all is not right. He's rebelling against God. God warns him with these revolutions, and yet he does not change. Again, I made the point earlier on. God's warnings of future wrath don't just begin with a letter. God's already warning him. There are signs in the world regarding God's wrath, and so it is for us today. And yet we will not repent. We will not turn and seek the Lord. Revolution. Then thirdly, also ruthlessness. Verse 4, Jehoram is driven by the spirit of this modern age. Me first. And I don't care who I crush on the way to me achieving my own happiness and my own ends. There's nothing new under the sun. Oh yeah, people are writing books now about selfism of the present age. Selfism is part of depraved human nature. And yes, and sometimes it manifests itself more clearly than others, but here it's being seen in Jehoram's action. He strengthened himself and slew all his brethren and the princes also. Self-advancement no matter the cost. Beware such a spirit, because God has no time for those of such a proud and arrogant heart. His time as king. And then finally, his death and judgment. He's a man, again, whose father loved the Lord. Great financial privileges. And yet as he reigns, he abuses his power and brings about judgment upon his head. Stubborn and rejecting God to the very end of his misery. And so verse 18 and following describes the end of his time. He dies without ceremony, honor, or desire. You know, some of the most tragic words in this passage are those in verse number 20. Departed without being desired. He was not missed by any. I think it is a godly aim to seek to live your life in order to be missed. That's self-exalting. No, I think it reflects the nature of church life. Because we say to ourselves, well, it is my duty to serve Christ. But how do we serve Christ on this earth? We serve Christ on this earth by serving His body. Matthew 25 makes that clear. Visiting, ministering, helping, we serve Christ as we serve the body of the church. And thus, if we give ourselves wholly for Christ, then when we depart, the church ought to mourn our departure. And they ought to say, as Elijah will say, Oh, Elijah. Or as Elisha will say when Elijah departs, the sense of missing a servant of God in the work of God. 
Don't live your life in rebellion against God in such a way that when you die, you will not be missed by any. No burning for him like the burning of his fathers. You know, David dies. First Chronicles 29, it says, and he died in a good old age, full of days, riches and honor, the sense of a man honored by God in his death, but not so for Jehoram. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That's a life of tragedy. And finally, just very, very briefly, note please a God of veracity here in this passage. There's a mention made in verse number 7 regarding the purpose of God in all of this. Howbeit the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David. And as he promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. Of course, this is resting upon the covenant God made with David Again, when David wants to build a house unto the Lord, 2 Samuel 7. And so as we look at this judgment that comes from Elijah to Jehoram, we're not only seeing this judgment in terms of God's wrath towards sin, but also God's wrath in terms of his covenantal faithfulness. Because God had warned, you, you turn to Psalm 89, God had warned that those of the sons of David who valued God's word would indeed encounter God's chastising judgments. Psalm 89, verse number 30. If his children forsake my law, walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. So you read 2 Chronicles 21 and you say to yourself, God is true to his word. He will indeed chastise and deal with those who are in his covenant with David. And he does so here in the times of Jehoram. God is true. But it's also the case here, not only is God faithful in his chastening in the covenant, he's also faithful in perpetuating the covenant. Look again at verse number 7. The reference is, as he promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. A light or a lamp. Over in 2 Samuel 21, it says this, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, succored him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, There shall go no more out with us, or thou shalt no more go out with us to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. David was the light of Israel. The concern of David's life being lost. And so it is in the ongoing lineage of the Judic kings. It is a light that God preserves. Psalm 132. There will I make the horn of David a bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. God is preserving a lamp, a light in the time of David. And thus a son is preserved in the line of Jehoram. Look please, 2 Corinthians 21 verse 17. Judgment comes upon Jehoram's family, as was predicted in verse number 14. Judgment comes. And his sons also, verse 17, and his wives, so that there was never a son left him, save Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. Now Jehoahaz is saved, not for Jehoram's sake, but for the sake of God's covenant. And so he reigns. Now, again, another confusing thing here. Jehoahaz is also called Isaiah in verse number 1 of chapter 22. If you have a marginal version, if you have a version, you'll see these two names are used interchangeably. 
So Isaiah, again in verse number 21, reigns, or verse 21 of 22 reigns also. His son is also then preserved. 22 verse number 10. When Athaliah, the mother of Isaiah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Isaiah, and stole him from one of the king's sons. There's preservation here. One generation after another, preserved in the purpose of God. The point is this. Satan gives obstacles to the working of God's kingdom, but nothing hinders God in bringing about the fulfillment of his messianic reign. Nothing will stop God keeping his will. So that when John the Baptist comes, it is said of John the Baptist, he announces the way of the Lord who will give light to them that sit in darkness. Jesus, the light of the world. And so in a passage of judgment, Again, you see in the purpose of God these overtures of grace. That though God will indeed bring his wrath upon the ungodly, he also preserves a remnant unto himself. Those who see the light of Christ Jesus and walk in that light, trusting in the God who gives that light and delighting in the light of God revealed in Christ Jesus. God keeps his word. So Jeremiah is a prophet indeed. A prophet that reveals again for us again the purpose of God. And may we put our trust in this God today. Let's bow together please as we close in prayer. Oh eternal God, take your word. You, you, you know those things that are of yourself and need to be applied directly to people's hearts. We pray you would do so for your glory. Help us again to look to thee, to trust in thee. May the word of God be of benefit to our hearts. Even in the, the names and the complexity and the confusion, may we see you, God, as a God of grace who warns of coming judgment, that we'd flee from that judgment and run to Christ, the light of the world. Help us, O oh God, today. Bless our fellowship together and I around the food. Again, may it be sweet. May we delight in thee. We pray again that in your kindness, our fellowship would be honoring to our God, to your edification, and to your benefit. And we'll give thee all the praise and all the glory. Bless us, you must leave. Take them home in safety. And may your good hand rest and abide upon us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.